Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 463, recorded on Sunday, March 12th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week, we're talking about Gillette. The extremely annoying American inventor-slash-traveling salesman, King Camp Gillette, invented disposable blades for the safety razor between 1895 and 1901, apparently with no prior relevant knowledge on the subject. And by 1903, the company was selling 12 million disposable blades per year. He retired in 1913 to become a super donor to the ideological project of promoting technocracy, governance of society, and economic distribution by apolitical engineers until his passing in 1932, According to the uh, Scientific American published book by Rodney Carlyle, Inventions and Discoveries, uh, which we've previously cited on our episode about microwave ovens. Uh, now, before we get further into talking about the company, uh, let's talk a little bit more about how uh, possibly crazy or at least eccentric uh, King Gillette himself was. Um, Quoting now from the Wikipedia page about the man himself, uh, Gillette was a utopian socialist. He published a book titled The Human Drift in 1894. So this was uh, the year before he uh, started his work on the disposable razor technology. And he advocated that all industries should be taken over by a single corporation owned by the public and, and that everyone in the U.S. should live in a giant city called Metropolis powered by Niagara Falls. Uh, a later book... Uh, this is from 1910, uh, after he had uh, become quite rich from the uh, disposable razor blade business, uh, was called World Corporation, which was a prospectus for a company set up to create this vision. And he offered uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt the company presidency with a fee of $1 million. Roosevelt declined the offer. Uh, and then interestingly, Gillette's last book was called The People's Corporation, which was co-written with Upton Sinclair, the famous... Uh, writer of such similar genre works, uh, and this later inspired Glenn H. Taylor. Glenn H. Taylor, we mentioned in Arsenal for Democracy, Lend-Lease episode 9 uh, from the year 2019, and our episode about U.S.-Soviet relations under FDR when we talked about the Henry A. Wallace presidential campaign, Glenn Taylor being the Idaho senator who was the running mate on that ticket, and we talked a little bit about him there. Uh, now, Wikipedia contends that uh, Gillette came up with the uh, disposable blade safety razor while working as a salesman at the company that invented disposable bottle caps in 1892 in Baltimore. 
Uh, and that might have uh, been one of the first major disposable products of the Industrial Revolution. So we might talk about uh, so-called crown corks, uh, again, disposable bottle caps that you are all familiar with today. Uh, we might talk about that on a future episode, but you can bear that in mind as a potential source, uh, an origin story for, for this. And uh, Rachel's going to talk now about the evolution of this technology uh, at the beginning um, because, of course, as we're going to talk about, uh, razor technology is constantly being, quote-unquote, innovated, uh, and you can debate what level of innovation is actually happening in those products, but it is fair to say that this was at least a significant uh, technological uh, jump forward that had a lot of influence on a lot of different sectors uh, because it proved this uh, model, uh, business model and uh, technology process. Yeah, so while the concept of a safety razor existed, they were basically shortened pieces of a straight razor clamped to a holder. Uh, the razor blade had to be stropped before each shave, and over time the blade had to be honed by a cutler. Um, after Gillette conceived of his disposable blade, it took six years to file a patent and develop a working model. The main challenge was finding someone who could manufacture blades out of thin sheet steel. Uh, Gillette finally found William Emery Nickerson, an MIT chemistry graduate. Even after all that, the project foundered until Gillette's friend John Joyce invested the money to get manufacturing off the ground. Uh, production finally began in 1903 and further improved in 1904 after Nickerson built a new blade grinding machine. I'm quoting from the Wikipedia article. Uh, during its first year of operation, the company had sold 51 razors and 168 blades, but the second year saw sales rise to 90,884 razors and 123,648 blades. So exponential, like just amazing uh, growth. Um, it ballooned into the second year. And between early patents, key contracts, aggressive marketing, and repeated product innovation, Gillette, the company, has often historically been the near monopoly company in the safety razor market or at least the leading market share company, often with an outright majority, even into the late 20th century, before it ceased to be an independent company. So obviously, we have talked on this show a lot about uh, these monopoly or near monopoly companies from the Second Industrial Revolution, which makes this a good one to talk about. But one of the themes that we often look for when we're discussing those episodes, whether we're talking about canned foods, whether we're talking about air conditioning, whether we're even talking about uh, wristwatches, is the ever-present defense spending connection. And sure enough, you're going to find a big one here with Gillette, which really goes a long way to explaining why the company uh, becomes so powerfully dominant uh, from its initial starting point, uh, which was pretty successful right out of the gate. But as we've seen, that's not necessarily always a recipe for permanent success for these companies. So although King Gillette himself pretty much retired from the company just before World War I, the huge breakthrough in the company's success was that coming war. While the U.S. government did not initially purchase shaving kits for its military personnel, these service members were required to bring their own kits with them. In part because of their patents, Gillette had the most convenient and straightforward design on the market for filling this enormous new demand, and they somehow got permission to use official logos of the U.S. Army and U.S. Navy on their cases. In 1917, the year the U.S. entered the war, they sold over one million razors, and that does mean razors, not blades. 
The next year, the military decided to buy the kits themselves for the troops instead of making people buy their own, and Gillette got that contract, selling 3.5 million razors and 32 million blades to the U.S. Armed Forces. After World War I, they featured their wartime supply prominence heavily in consumer marketing campaigns, and many veterans continued the habit of daily home shaving. And that's according to the uh, book from 1998 uh, published by the Harvard Business School, Cutting Edge, Gillette's Journey to Global Leadership by Gordon McKibben. When the patent on the original design expired in 1921, the company introduced a new and improved design they could patent and continue to charge premium prices for. But they also converted the original design into an inexpensive downmarket model to dramatically expand their customer base. This marked a significant shift for the company, contrary to popular legend, because up until this point they had been aiming at a premium market and charging accordingly, for both blades and razors, and they had not initially adopted the business model of selling an inexpensive razor to lure in customers who would then pay marked up blade prices on a continuous recurring basis. Gillette struggled domestically during the Great Depression, but continued to build a lucrative overseas market, although this was soon partly cut off in the 1940s when Germany and Japan nationalized Gillette production lines in those major markets. Toward the end of the Depression, the company began linking itself more heavily to American sports, something that it's known for today, which seemed to boost sales noticeably, and they would later dramatically increase this advertising linkage in the early television sports era. During World War II, steel was rationed for the war effort, but the company managed to develop products that used less steel. Eventually, the U.S. government ordered virtually all of Gillette's razor and blade production to be diverted toward supplying U.S. service members, although they also gave them secret contracts to develop special shaving equipment for intelligence operatives behind enemy lines. And that's according to the same book that I cited earlier uh, from Gordon McKibben. Uh, and there were some examples mentioned about, like, making sure that the kits matched what the type of uh, safety razor would look like in a particular country so that they wouldn't stand out for having the wrong one, or making uh, safety razors that included special spy gear hidden inside them, things like that. Um, now, one of the other things, of course, that uh, Gillette is known for, besides all this male-oriented product uh, services that we've just been describing is that they also had product lines for women. One thing that I was a little surprised to learn was how early that emerged. So Rachel is going to tell us a little bit more about that. So Gillette had female-focused product lines fairly early on, at least by the mid-1910s. Uh, Gillette sold the first women's razor in 1915, and they also had the first advertisement for women's razors in 1917, and the ad shows a woman wearing a fashionable sleeveless gown and posing with her arms behind her head. And the ad is captioned, without embarrassment, an intimate talk to women. Um, so this ad simultaneously created a brand new beauty standard, shamed women for not adhering to it, and then helpfully provided the immediate solution to this new beauty standard. Classic um, marketing. So, yep, very convenient for them. And then during the 1920s, as hemlines rose, a new target for Gillette razors was revealed, uh, leg hair, and advertisements showed modern women showing off their hairless legs. And Gillette would heavily advertise in the summer months when more skin would be showing. And uh, leg hair later, leg hair removal later became essential during World War II nylon shortages when women went without stockings. And Gillette came out with an electric razor at that time that made shaving more convenient and probably also 
um, used less ongoing amounts of steel because it was a one-time electric razor that didn't require disposable blades. Um, so by the 1960s, virtually all women aged 15 to 44 removed some body hair. And so they, they pretty much had the market tied up. Um, in the 1990s and 2000s, Gillette advertisements focused on shaving even more body parts to be attractive to men. Um, so new features that made shaving bikini lines uh, easier started to proliferate. And in 2000, Gillette introduced their new Venus razor line. Um, Venus razors were advertised as comfortable to hold and designed with pivoting razor heads that can maneuver over any body part. Um, in the last decade or so, ads have become even more overt, talking directly about shaving the bikini line and even showing women shaving rather than merely hinting about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, they they have created this brand new beauty standard over the last century, and now all women basically adhere to it um, and feel great pressure to do so. However, women have been more vocal about the downsides of compulsory hair removal over the last decade or so. Um, one big gripe is the quote-unquote pink tax of women's products costing significantly more than men's. I'm quoting from an article on thebalancemoney.com. Uh, Razor cartridges marketed toward women were the most expensive product analyzed, costing almost 25% more than those marketed toward men. Razors targeted at female consumers were 9% more expensive, while shaving cream was almost 10% more expensive. So everything uh, aimed towards women, uh, women's hair removal, is just insanely expensive compared to men's products. And actually, a lot of uh, women have started using men's products to kind of get around this pink tax. Um, also, hair removal for women has taken a hit over the pandemic. Um, according to a poll conducted on behalf of Dove, uh, one in three women started shaving their armpits less over the pandemic. And of those, 13% said they intend to keep it that way. And along with this poll, there is just a, a lot of anecdotal articles detailing the many stories of women that decided to stop listening to ads that portray body hair as embarrassing. Um, a quick Google search will really uh, show show you a ton of them. Um, I tried to find hard numbers. It was like rates and percentages. Um, and all I really found was that anecdotal data, um, or not real data, but anecdata. Um, However, an October 2020 article from New York Magazine quoted Procter & Gamble, which is the parent company of Gillette as of 2005, as saying that women's razor and blade sales were on the rise. So who can say what the truth is? Um, and I wonder if that October 2020 date um, reflected still kind of the early part of, of pandemic li living. So I wonder if more and more women decided to drop their grooming habits as the pandemic just kind of dragged on. Um, also of note from the New York Mag article, uh, Gillette has recently introduced a line of King C. Gillette products for beard maintenance, which capitalizes on the fact that more men are growing beards and shaving less in this post-lockdown era, and also giving a nod to the original weirdo founder of the company. Whose face for many years graced the packages. They used an actual picture of him for a long time to advertise the uh, Gillette safety razors with disposable blades. Yeah, if you if you go to the source um, for uh, the history of marketing to women, um, the uh, which was found on Inventiva, um, there was an that original 1917 ad, and his face is just hanging out in the corner. So he's very recognizable if you saw him. Every time you looked at an ad for razors, so, yep, 
very, very famous for his face. This man wants you to move to Niagara Falls and live in a mega city with shaved pits. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Rachel, what did we learn from this episode? Well, I didn't realize I kind of heard about the flapper era and like women started grooming and and shaving their armpits at that time. But I didn't realize uh, that the advertisers were targeting women from the very beginning, like even earlier than the flapper era. The fancy gowns era with sleeveless uh, before even the flapper era. Yep, exactly. So I wasn't really aware of that. Um, I was aware of just kind of how insidious and all-encompassing advertising to women is. So that wasn't too much of a surprise, but the length of time was, was surprising to me. I was a little surprised to see how big of a market share Gillette still has, um, that it, it really maintained its its edge and dominance throughout all the various ups and downs and marketing wars and things like that. I also uh, was not surprised to learn, but did not previously know about the defense spending connection in both World War One and World War Two. I mean, again, that fits with pretty much every other company like this that we've looked at. There's always some connection there where they got a huge contract uh, from the federal government related to defense spending, and that propelled them to new success yeah and uh this kind of like continuous quote-unquote innovation uh i i remember like the blade wars of of like the 90s where like everyone every new razor manufacturer had to come out with three four five bladed razors so it's not surprising that gillette was kind of the the impetus behind those blade wars as well yeah and that was what i sort of alluded to at the beginning of the episode which is like on the one hand king gillette made this sort of technological leap forward. I mean, he had to hire a bunch of people to come up with it for him to actually implement the idea because it was technically complicated to get the machine tooling right to do the stainless steel in a way that was viable and all of that. Um, But like, yeah, this sort of disposable products concept, which was quite new at the time and are is sort of really popularized by these disposable blades on these safety razors that is an innovation whether you think it's a good or a bad innovation is a separate question but it's an innovation for sure and then all of these like slight iterations to keep on top of patents and you know maintain market edge share and thing like that i mean we didn't even go into the history of like all the different uh you know earlier razor wars that they were having in various countries especially latin america at various points um there's a lot more that we could have gone into here but like yeah they're clearly one of the driving companies for many decades in the 20th century behind this push of like, oh, we'll just make a little slight tweak and slightly improve it. And you got to get a new model because you don't want to fall behind. You got to keep up with it. Right. And then you got to also have this ongoing consumable product. And of course, the comparisons are pretty obvious to things like the uh, coffee pods and, and that sort of thing. Right. That's like the current, you know, latest and greatest in that uh, line of that model of, of operating a business. I just wanted to mention, like, also they would obsolesce things a lot because I know even over, let's see, the, um, let's see, like the 20 or so years that I've been, maybe like 30 years I've been grooming, like how many razor handles you kind of end up collecting over time because the blades get discontinued. And so then you're just stuck with all these handles that you can't get blades for anymore. So yay, thanks Gillette. (laughs) And uh, for more on that topic, uh, please check out episode 339 from January 2021, The Future of Planned Obsolescence, featuring our friend Patrick, uh, where he talked about 
the history of planned obsolescence and sort of the origins of that, which come out of that uh, a very similar uh, period in the early 20th century, in the interwar period, uh, you, you start getting a really serious focus on this idea of planned obsolescence as opposed to just sort of natural uh, obsolescence uh, as a, a uh, consumer marketing and development strategy to keep your business constantly uh, selling more products, whether or not they are needed. All right. Well, Rachel, uh, fascinating little topic. Uh, thanks again for coming on to talk about this with me and, and for researching it with me. Yeah, it was a, it was a good topic and a fun time. <laughs>